Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today we are talking with Riley Turner. Riley, also known as Lung Thief on TikTok, is a third year BFA acting student with a deep love for Much Ado, Coriolanus, and mid-2000s pop punk music. When she is not on stage, she can be found working on illustrations, devising outlandish production pitches, and thinking about Les Mis. Previous Shakespeare roles of Riley's include Mark Antony in Julius Caesar and Claudio in Much Ado About Nothing, and some dream roles of hers include Hermia, Beatrice, and Ophidius. Riley is here with us today to talk a little bit about her TikTok and to discuss how the Shakespeare industry can do better by women. I am absolutely delighted to share our conversation with you. Riley is such a joy. But first, as always, I got a little high and Riley enjoyed her favorite drink. We are back talking about the plague with Riley Turner. Riley, how did you spend your quarantines? I spent it making a lot of videos on TikTok. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was weird because I actually graduated like right. I graduated from high school right as the the quarantine began. Um, so it was it was really weird being in that situation and like there was a there's a theater competition that I was a part of that obviously you know got canceled and so um just adjusting to the end of my academic high school career and going into college was very uh very very difficult but also you know a really uniquely challenging experience um so yeah yeah I I can't imagine like I've was so far removed from school when it, it all happened. But my cousin, I think is probably around the same age as you. She went through the exact same thing. And I don't know, like, I still feel like that was such a big part of my life growing up. So I, I can't imagine losing those last few months of, um, of high school, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry that that happened. But on the bright side, your TikTok is banging <laughs> I love your content so much I am like so glad do you want to talk like a little bit about how you come up with your ideas like sure, yeah yeah I'd love to <laughs> um so I know a lot of people got like into making content as the quarantine began because you know um people just didn't have other things to do but I started a few uh, I started like fall before quarantine happened so I had already kind of made a little Shakespeare niche for myself but there weren't many other like Shakespeare creators there were a few people in like humanities TikTok um and we you know at that point it wasn't a hugely like widespread thing um so we were a pretty close-knit community and then more and more creators kind of showed up and um we all started making more and more content um and really it just kind of flourished from there, which has been so cool to watch. Um, I think one of the things that I, I do is just like, you know, there are certain 
audios that are trending and figuring out how to put that within the context of the shows. Um, and I think that's what a, what a lot of us do. There are also things that I, you know, things that I uniquely enjoy kind of talking about. I've made a few videos about like gender in Shakespeare and um, certain interpretations of the plays. And sometimes I'll get questions from commenters about certain aspects of um, different productions or things like that. I did a a review series that I'm continuing to do. I just haven't done it um, in a while where I I'm, I'm so fortunate that my university has like an entire library of like RSC productions, Globe productions and stuff that are just available to me. And so I've been making my way through them and watching all of them and just kind of, do, kind of doing like these short reviews of um, each of them. And I still have a lot of them that I need to film and edit, <laughs> but um, that's one of the, the series that I, I really enjoyed making. That's so cool. I'm so jealous that you have access to all of that. Holy cannoli, I wish. Um, I know I saw, um, I think, several videos of you talking about Merchant of Venice. And part of why I like wanted to have you on the show in general, because I was like, you are, you're just so well-spoken. You are so smart. Um, and your content is brilliant. And when I found out how old you were, I was like, no, 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 no. You're smarter than some of the people I know who are like 40 who have an MFA in this shit. So thank you. That means a lot. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I Merchant. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was one of the shows that I really wanted to talk about when you, you know, approached me for this episode and speaking about women specifically, because like it is it's it's such an interesting show when it comes to its approach to female characters and it's also like because one of the things that we you know talk about is how Portia some people like to frame her as this like I hate saying girl boss but that's how people frame us yeah and that's first of all not an accurate depiction of her character whatsoever um so but it's also just really reductive when it comes to like giving female Shakespeare characters their due as complicated, incredibly flawed people. Um, and so to to see like certain productions frame it as she's, you know, 100% in the right or like brush aside the, the things that she does that are, you know, bigoted or problematic or whatever um, is just, it doesn't, feel first of all it's not faithful to the text um but it also just it's a very kind of surface level feminism that's being reflected as well I think yeah I agree I I think we have very similar opinions on Portia and I saw a production a few months back that I felt like dealt with her the best way I've ever seen, which was like, okay, we kind of get to like her at the beginning when she's trying to figure everything out with the the men and the the chests and all of that. And then in the middle, you start to see like the cracks. And then they did the, they copied the RSC. We're going to have Antonio and Bassanio smooch in front of her. And then that was like what inspired the anger in Quality of Mercy and all through the end of all of that. And then 
right after she finished being just absolutely awful, she had a moment where like she kind of snapped out of it and you could see that she was like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have done what I just did. That was really, really bad. And I was like, okay, like doesn't fully redeem you. You don't get any text to actually say that, but right. like you're, you're a human. I can, I can deal with that. I still That's don't really know if I want to see it produced very much anymore, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interesting because uh, so many of the productions that I've seen have, you know, again, kind of just gone that one angle of like, she's only flawed in the sense that she wants to, you know, I don't know that, that she has this weird relationship with her father and that's it and it's like again if you push that stuff aside if you push her bigotry aside if you push her ability to be vindictive aside then you again are like disservicing the entire play because I think it's so significant that Portia is smart but also that she is not you know she's also a product of her time and the way that she was raised and her privilege and everything about her. Um, and so like, that's, it's, it's, I'm so glad that certain productions are kind of at least giving that, that angle to her as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think you cannot produce a, a merchant and have it be not completely anti-Semitic without yeah, having her 100%. kind of monstrous at the end. Like, she just kind of has to be. So yeah, this uh kind of leads into what we're talking about today in general, um, which is the idea that like the Shakespeare industry at large falls short for a lot of communities. And I think one of them is women. So with you, I am curious as to like, how do you think we we are falling short and how can we do better? I think it, it kind of is, is part of that whole conversation of like the surface level, you know, casting certain characters as female or acknowledging like how genuinely badass some of Shakespeare's characters are without adding any depth to them, I think is one of the things mm -hmm. that that can lead to some shortcomings. Um, and I think that's true of like a lot of different ways in which Shakespeare plays are are being produced or attempting to, you know, be more inclusive is that on the surface level, there is, you know, a character that originally maybe was male and then was cast as female or, um, you know, making certain characters queer that weren't originally, you know, queer in the text. And then people saying, well, you know, this is representation, this is good, but then not really putting that into the context of the text or like seeing the underlying kind of tropes that can be harmful, things like that. Um, I recently, I made a video about um, the Bridges Midsummer uh, that they did back in 2019. And it's a wonderful production and I really enjoy it. And I had some people in my comments talking about um, the Emma Rice version that was done at the Globe where Helena was changed to Helenus. And so you had a queer relationship that was, you know, front and center, which on paper sounds like a great thing, but then you also have to like take into the account the, you know, history of gay men being portrayed as predatory and how changing 
Helena from a woman to a man can play into that harmful trope, you know? So I think having creatives that maybe on the surface level want to give more opportunities to women um, or do different things with the text, but not really delving into how the history of it all or how beyond the surface level representation, how those things work um, is, is a place where we're falling short. And I think that can be remedied by, you know, having more women on creative teams, not just being actors, um, having, you know, queer people and people of color making the decisions behind the scenes as well as, you know, playing the characters. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I feel like the plays can definitely be used to say something that they're not necessarily saying if you cast things the right way. But you have to be so careful and attentive to how you're doing that. I I made a video recently responding to somebody who was like, do you think casting all women in Taming of the Shrew would fix Taming of the Shrew? And so many people in the comments were like, it's just spousal abuse then. Like it's the, it's the same thing, the same problem. Like it doesn't make any sort of comment. Like, I guess maybe if you swapped the genders, you might make some dudes in the audience kind of uncomfortable and maybe reflect on some of that, but it's still just like glorifying that, that horrible thing. Whereas yeah. like an all-female Macbeth can do a great job highlighting like there's a lot of uh misogynistic text in Macbeth that you don't necessarily hear until it comes out of the mouth of a lady like yeah you gotta yeah. weigh weigh those options a little absolutely. bit absolutely yeah. and I think that there are definitely like over the summer I went and saw a production of Much Ado at the Globe where um Leonardo was a woman uh and Antonio was a woman as well and it, you know, at first, Much Ado is is such a, like, every Shakespeare play is, gender is a huge part of all of them, but Much Ado specifically, gender is such a huge theme and has so much to do with the outcome of the play. So going in, I was like, well, you know, the, one of the reasons that they believe Claudio is because they're men and because there's that sense of male solidarity um, and credibility given to men that just isn't granted to women. But um, this this production took place in like the 1940s. And to see a woman who was put in this position of like, you know, she's the head of the household, but even then she's still kind of, she's on, she's on the defense as well because she is the head of the household because she's put in this position of power, but she's still not as powerful as the men above her. Um, seeing her you know, grapple with the fact that her daughter has been accused of something. And then like hearing that really kind of misogynistic speech that Leonardo does um, at the wedding come from a woman. I originally, I was like, well, I have no idea, you know, will this, will this work? Because I don't know if I would ever believe that a woman would say that to her daughter. But then the way that like the substitution of, of, womb for loins there was something in that something in that like you know maternal disappointment like you've not only kind of disgraced me but also like we're the representatives of our of our entire sex here and you know anyway just seeing that it definitely was an angle that I'd never kind of I never would have thought of before um and then 
to contrast that, the solidarity that that happened, um, you know, among uh, Leonardo and Antonio during, you know, the scene where <laughs> they are uh, threatening to fight Claudio was was so wonderful to watch because you saw this woman standing up for her daughter. Um, it was just, it was really interesting. And I think that's, you know, again, it's something that I'm glad a director decided to do because it was a way to make the text new in this different time period, but also, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just saying, well, I want to put a woman, woman in this because we need more women on stage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so smart. That makes me think of, uh, Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist and how, um, he talks about how like black people in specific like can have the ability to either swing from like being anti-racist actively or kind of falling into being assimilationist and that falling into being assimilationist is not necessarily a bad thing it's not necessarily a choice it's something that happens because you're like an underrepresented person and you have to fight your way to have the same amount of even like feeling of power not even having the power that the people around you have to have and that's that's what that makes me think of is like this woman especially in the 40s like yeah she she has to grasp at the straws that she has and sometimes you don't see the wrong that you're doing when you are in a position like that. And I think it's cool that then she has that moment to kind of snap out of it and have that like woman, pe- that's so cool. Yeah, oh. it was it was really interesting. It was really cool to watch. Huh. Oh, wow, I love that. Um, I guess with all of this in mind, uh, do you have any other productions or characters you would like to see with the influence of women? Um, I do, I think that, I mean, one of, one of the things that I think is is really fun in general is seeing, you know, productions of Midsummer where Lysander is a, a woman. Um, I think that is, I don't know, it's it's one of those choices that's like, it's not groundbreaking or anything, but again, it adds another dimension to the text because then, you know, there's this element of grappling with homophobia. And, um, and again, there are some people who would say, well, like, well, the whole point of Midsummer is that, you know, Lysander and Demetrius are basically interchangeable, but I think that doesn't always have to be the case. Um, and, you know, I think that what the bridge did with their production of Midsummer, where Oberon was the one who ended up falling in love with Bottom instead of Titania also added like a huge kind of different layer to the text, especially with the, they double cast um, Theseus and Oberon and Hippolyta and Titania, which is kind of people tend to do a lot nowadays but it became this thing where um Athens was this like very very patriarchal um society and then you know obviously the forest becomes this place where you know it was it was very much queer friendly and a much happier kind of place to exist so this was kind of Theseus's Oberon was kind of like Theseus's avatar into sexual freedom and exploration, and he was granted that ability. So by the time that, you know, the lovers woke up and Theseus, you know, he was still part of the plot, um, they could be like, well, he had this this change of heart because he had experienced this dream. Um, and it's it's just, I, I love seeing directors 
do things like that um, and add these kind of different layers to characters that already exist and are already, you know, so multidimensional um, and see how they can add even more to that. Yeah, I love that. I feel like you're right. People love to conflate Demetrius and Lysander <laughs> for some reason, but like, I feel like Lysander is like a himbo and Demetrius <laughs> is just an asshole. Yeah. Um, so I would love to see the like bimbo version of Lysander on stage, like not just hard to accept because she's a woman, but even hard to accept because she's like a sexually liberated woman. Like, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, love I also, um, when I was in high school, actually, what, what got me, I mean, I was already very much into Shakespeare, what kind of, but what kind of solidified me wanting to do Shakespeare was this production of Julius Caesar that I was in that was an all-female cast. Um, I got to play Antony, which is like, it was crazy to do, you know, at 15. Um, <laughs> and obviously there are many different choices I would have made now, <laughs> um, but it was genuinely such an interesting experience because I feel like people think of Caesar as just a really boring play because they're like oh there's all these white old dudes and togas and you know most of the play is people talking and um the climax happens in you know act three and then you have this whole war um but to see it in with an all-female cast and with a cast that was you know young women um was a really interesting experience because it was, you know, something that you probably wouldn't see outside of a high school, <laughs> but it was, it was really fun. One of, one of the things that was really cool about it too, is that the, the girls who were playing Brutus and Caesar were identical twins. Um, so it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was a really incredible experience. And we also, we were lucky enough to be partnered with this um, charity that works with girls who, um, like need extra kind of support, um, in like, they're from like impoverished communities, things like that. We were able to bring them in to come see our show. And then we did a Q and a afterwards. And so it was such a unique experience to provide to a group of young women who had never, you know, seen a Shakespeare play before. And, to have that experience with them and to see all of these young women grappling with destiny and with politics and with betrayal and all of these different things that you do at some level as a teenage girl have to deal with, um, but just on a, such a, such a large scale um, in this production, it was it was really cool. That's so neat. I also feel like channeling the rage of a teenage girl into those characters during the most violent parts of that play it's real it was so much fun <laughs> it was so much fun I yeah. would love to see something like that that's awesome all right well Riley before we wrap up do you have anything else you would like to add um I think that I mean, the biggest thing that I love about Shakespeare is that we can, because of its role in the cultural zeitgeist, we have so much power to make it our own. And I think that, especially being a woman, having something like that was originally rooted in the patriarchy and in this all-male theatrical tradition 
being able to make something like that our own is such a unique experience and such a wonderful experience and I'm just so lucky to know people um, that are so dedicated to making theater that is inclusive and that you know turns around that kind of narrative um, and again with Shakespeare like it's it's so interesting because obviously there are drawbacks to it because it was written several centuries ago <laughs> by um, a white man um, but also because of its kind of relevance, even now we're able to make it something that is bigger than just some plays written by a guy several centuries ago. So yeah, I think I think that's really important. And the work that I've gotten to do over the quarantine, like with other Shakespeare creators, like Casey Fox and um, Al, No Fear Shakespeare, like all of them, we did, we did a Zoom production of Much Ado, um, and to see that community, you know, in the 21st century during a pandemic was crazy, but it was so cool as well. And it's so uplifting to know that, like, something like Shakespeare can, can bring people from all over the world together to create something small and fun or create something, you know, that has a larger effect. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Well, I am so glad that I got to have you on the show. I know that you are yet but young indeed, and that you are going to make a dent in the Shakespeare world. Like you're, you're very, very smart. And I am humbled by that intelligence. And I'm very honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. All right. We are going to wrap up for now. Thanks, y'all. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Riley and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. It helps the podcast so much. And tune in either next week or the following week. Sorry, y'all, I haven't made a final decision about the holidays but it will be our final episode of A Plague, and in it we will be talking with Logan Rasmussen and Ashley Marie Chavez about how the Shakespeare industry can do better by different indigenous communities. I am so excited for that conversation, but until then, bye y'all. A thousand thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there.